This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I know this is now, you know, a few months into 2020, and you're like, great, I've left 2019 behind, I'm ready to move forward and live my life to the fullest and forget everything that happened in the year in the past, but we are not ready to let the past fully be done. In the last episode of our season, we are going to announce our favorite films of 2019 and joining me on this adventure is stephanie Pryor. thanks for joining me today hi thanks for having me back yeah no worries um so the reason why this usually takes so long is because we get so caught up in trying to watch the oscar movies that that's kind of our priority <laughs> and then when the oscars are done we sort of like try to piece together what other non-Oscar nominated movies that we missed and by the time that all gets done it's basically March and regular years but but now this is uh, the beginning of March we're recording this at the end of February um, so for anyone that's a little confused of why this is coming three months late this is the reason why uh, so hopefully you forgive us now, throughout this show, we're both going to name our top 10 favorite movies of the year. We're also going to have some voicemails from friends of the show talking about what their number one favorite movie of the year is. And so it's going uh, to be a nice love fest where we're just going to be super positive about the things we really liked. We're going to start off the show with a voicemail from Harper, who is one of the co-hosts at Hawkeye's podcast, a Ethan Hawke-themed podcast. Uh, Harper's been on the show before. She, uh, You probably heard her voice during the Best of the Decade uh, run. She contributed a few clips to that. And uh, let's hear from Harper again to kick off this show. Hi, my name is Harper, and I'm the co-host of Hawkeye's, an Ethan Hawke podcast. While Parasite is technically probably the best movie of the year, I was really inspired to talk about a different movie for this conversation of the best films of 2019. I'd like to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I've seen it in theaters three times, and each time I was completely entranced by the film. The performances by Adele Enel and Naomi Marlant are beyond gorgeous. So many subtle expressions quickly flash across their faces to let the audience in on their complex and deep emotions, and also their chemistry is truly on fire. Beyond just their performances, the film itself is so by and for women. I've honestly never seen anything like it. I had the chance to catch a Q&A with the director, Skiyama, and the two stars, and they discussed the way the female gaze factored into how the movie was constructed, and it completely comes across. It's such a uniquely and beautifully feminine film. I was in awe of it the first time I saw it, and I still was the third time. One last thing, if I haven't gone completely over. The screenplay is so good. There are a few lines that just kill me every time. Particularly the scene where Marianne asks Eloise, You dreamed of me? And Eloise responds, No, I thought of you. Killer. What a film. So the big thing we're going to really start off with is what movies did we miss this year that we wanted to see that we just didn't get around to that potentially could have been in our list, you know, if if everything, you know, lined up appropriately based on 
actors we liked, directors we liked, different world cinema, things like that. So it's kind of a little bit all over the place. Um, I've got a, a big long list. Stephanie, do you have any that you want to kind of throw off there that you, you didn't get a chance to see that you kind of wish you did that you think might have been there, but just didn't we just didn't have the time to see? Yeah, I have just a, a couple. I feel like I saw most of the movies that I felt that I wanted to see from last year. But uh, two major call-outs that I didn't get to see were um, Waves, starring Sterling K. Brown, who I love. And just from the trailer alone, it looks like a beautiful, emotional roller coaster ride of a film. So that's one that I'm sad that I missed out on. And also, everybody knows the Asghar Bahadi movie, who we are both a fan of from A Separation and Death of a Salesman. Uh, that we've seen, but uh, with Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem, it just looked uh, really intense, really like part thriller, part mystery, part drama. So uh, I'm sad that I missed that one also. Now, Waves was the movie directed by Trey Edward Schultz, who did Cresha, which we saw that we, we both yes. kind of liked. Uh, we didn't see his follow-up movie, It Comes at Night, which was kind of like a, a horror thriller-ish mm -hmm. movie that got mixed reviews. But Waves looked definitely looked really interesting. Yeah. Um, for me, I have a, a pretty big list, you know, I'm, I'm such a movie connoisseur, snob, whatever you want to call me, that there's always a million movies I want to see. Both of those that you mentioned, I didn't get around to seeing either that I wanted to see. But the biggest, biggest one for me was A Hidden Life, the new Terrence Malick movie. By all accounts, it was his return to form using a more narrative structure, something that he's abandoned the last couple of films. And I really want to see what he was going to do with that paired with obviously his beautiful cinematography and, and poetic style of filmmaking. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, obviously that is a, a huge miss for me as well that hopefully we we'll get around to seeing in the real near, near future. I really want to check that one out. Uh, Her Smell, the Alex Ross Perry movie starring Elizabeth Moss. Atlantics, the Senegalese movie that uh, was a long list for the Best International Film at the Oscars this year. Transit, the Christian Petzold movie where you couldn't tell if it was taking place in during 1940s Nazi Germany or present-day fascist world. Uh, very unique film. Ash is the Purest White, which was uh, a Chinese movie from this year. Lauro, which when I was doing research of movies I might have missed, uh, I learned that I missed a Paolo Sorrentino film, which is absolutely shocking to me. He did The Great Beauty and a few other films I'm a big fan of. And he did a, a basically a satirical biopic about Silvio Berlusconi, the former Italian prime minister. And I don't know how I did not know that this movie came out. Um, Queen and Slim and Birds of Passage. Those are probably the big ones where I don't know if they would have made my list, but they're probably the biggest titles that I missed this year. And so if you don't hear me talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire being my number one movie of the year, this is the reason why. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but all that said, I figure we should uh, probably get right into the countdown. The way we're going to kind of do this is we're going to try to go back and forth, but we have quite a bit of overlap. So when we come to a movie that we both agree on, we'll state the sort of position it landed on our list and then jointly talk about it. That way it's not, you know, you talk about it for a minute, I bite my tongue, and then, right. you know, a few spots later talk I have to again. talk about it and, you know, we're just repeating <laughs> ourselves or whatever. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense? Great. Uh, so, Stephanie, how about you start us off with uh, your number 10 pick? Great. So, this is one that I saw earlier on in the year that I'm surprised still ended up on my top 10 with all the great films that I watched in the past from 2019. 
But um, Under the Silver Lake really stuck with me. I thought um, it was a great little neo-noir flick uh, with some great humor, some great mystery, um, and just some fun editing and script work. Uh, Andrew Garfield was really great in this. I haven't really seen a a lot that he's been in, um, but I thought he was perfect for this role. It was a fun little ride, and like I said, it it really stuck with me, and it was a... It was an interesting watch. It was a kind of a weird watch. But interestingly enough, I feel like it has a similar vibe and story to another film that's going to make my top ten. Um, so it's like a prelude into an even better version of what it could have been. Interesting. Yeah, this is a movie I liked. I'm a bit of a sucker for both noir and detective mystery sort of movies. And it was very much uh, inspired by people like David Lynch. And so it had a lot of things going for it. I think it was a little too all over the place for me, but... That's something what, that I liked about it. Yeah, and, and it's one of those movies where I, I, I was quite a fan of, and it's one that I'll recommend to people, although it is quite a weird movie. It is weird. Uh, In but, all the best ways. <laughs> but it, it's still it's it's one that I think is a flawed movie, but I'd rather watch a flawed movie like this than a boring movie right. any any day of the week. Uh, so coming in for number 10 for me is also your number nine movie mm-hmm. is the Polish film Corpus Christi. This was a movie that uh, I didn't know much about and just on the surface reading the IMDb description about uh, a man who impersonates being a priest in a small Polish town doesn't really give you very much information about what this movie is. But really that is the heart of what this movie is. But so much of it lies in the performance by the lead character. Uh, he is this delinquent who is in juvenile prison who gets out and he's supposed to go to this small mill town and work in a mill because uh, the mill owner has a reputation of being one of the only people that will hire these juvenile delinquents. And right before he gets to the mill, he sees that there is a church, so he steps in and with his stolen um, collar, priest collar uh, shirt that he has, he basically not cons his way in, but sort of on a personal dare kind of worms his way into the church. But the reality is, despite him being, you know, the, the convicted criminal and the bad guy and all this sort of stuff, he is the person that's able to sort of shine a light on this small Polish village and and bring it the catharsis that it needs. And and so much about this movie is is about dealing with pain and loss and and how we approach what is good and bad about the world and people. And there's so many different layers and and conflicts with everyone that's going on. It's just a very beautiful but very impactful movie. And it's much more of a... I I don't want to, I guess the best way to kind of compare it is maybe a bit of a boxing match. Like it's a very intense at times. There's a bit of a ballet going on with it. It hits you hard at times and you don't really know what to expect. There's a lot of very interesting things. Why why did this make your list? Yeah, I mean, for all the same reasons that you said, I think that the, um, I won't even try and say his name for fear of butchering it, but his performance as the lead character was just phenomenal. And uh, I think the cinematography was great in this film and, and along with that, the editing, but just the story that it told and the way it made you think about, you know, who you get your advice from and how you feel about things and when, when things are hidden in the shadow and, you know, what gets brought to light and how you feel about certain things. It really makes you think, it really makes you feel. 
and it had uh, an impactful impression on me, which mm-hmm. is why it's it's here on my top ten. Yeah, the, the the actor who plays the the young man, uh, I also don't want to butcher his name either. He plays the character of Daniel, a very young man who I I really hope we get to see him in, in more films. Yeah. It seems like Poland's having a bit of a a renaissance moment, moment uh, with uh, the last couple of years they've been making the short list for the the foreign language film slash international film with uh, Ida and Cold War from Pavel Pawlikowski, and then now films. this movie from uh, Jan Kamasa, who I'm, I'm very curious to see what else is gonna come out of Poland. Yeah. I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. Okay. See you tomorrow. Good. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. So coming in at number nine for me is Little Women. This was the Greta Gerwig movie that starred Saoirse Ronan and uh, a whole bunch of other fantastic actors. And for some reason, this movie just really hit me in the sweet spot. I didn't have any sort of history with this film. I've never read the book. I've never seen any one of the previous adaptations, but for some reason, it just hit me the right way. I liked the playing with time and the beautiful costumes and the lush cinematography and, and the score. But really, I think what worked best for me were the quiet tender moments uh mostly where you had uh one of the sisters beth march who would be playing the piano at um chris cooper's house who uh who plays one of the neighbors who's the the rich man that lives next door and he invites her over and every time the two of them had one of their scenes together it just was very emotional and very moving and i really loved what they were doing with that and and gerwig was able to update the script to be very poignant of of both a look of what it meant to be a, a woman back when when this movie takes place but also a modern woman and that was really brought to life quite well by both Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh the two I guess main leads and and I was very happy to see that both of them got nominated uh, at the Oscars this year it was a bit of a coming out year for Florence Pugh a, a fan I'm a big fan of her as a whole and so this was a movie I, I went in not expecting to love it this much and, and it really did hit me in, in the sweet spot there was quite a few moments that uh, that made me quite emotional I know this is one that you weren't quite as high on yeah it didn't connect with me as much as uh, as much as I am excited for Florence Pugh's um, future and what she's going to bring to cinema I'm very excited to see you know the, f- the following films that she gets to be in but there was just there was just too many like soft squishy heartwarming moments for me that's not really my thing um, although there was, there are scenes that stick out to me in this film. One in particular is where Florence Pugh and Timothy Chalamet are, are talking and she's in the midst of cleaning up after she's painting and she's talking about the exchange of what marriage means for a woman and what marriage means for a man. And I feel like that was like the strongest scene for me. So that's my takeaway from that film, but I, I won't put it down because this is a podcast about being positive. Like, so. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Then let's keep the positive train going. What is your number eight film? So 
Coming in at number eight for me is I Lost My Body, a French animation film that I thought was so innovative and so unique uh, in the form of storytelling. It's about this hand uh, trying to find this body that it's been um, cut off from and telling the story, uh, you know, kind of in tandem of, of post being chopped off from body and 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 pre being chopped off from body and I just thought it was such an amazing story and such a unique way we all think about sight and what sight means to us and and how we you know our can our memory for sight and even from you know um our other things. senses as well, yeah, hearing. Yeah, like cues, different sensual cues. We never think about touch. And just watching this film made me think, oh my God, yeah, like there's so many memories that are tactile and all about feeling and touching and, you know, the sensation of your hands touching things that I thought it was incredible. And the way that it told, you know, the past the memories through these this hand and reliving it. And it was, I just thought it was amazing. And it really stuck to me and, you know, a lot of people think that animation is just for children, and it's super not. I mean, as a graphic designer, I'm a huge fan of animation in any form. But this really was something new to me in a different way of being um, animation for adults and for storytelling. So I was extremely happy and so wish that it had a better reception. Uh, should have won, you know, Best Animated Film feature film for me at the Oscars this year, but it definitely deserves to be on everybody's top 10. So that's why it's number eight for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this tactile, I think, is the best way to describe it, because there's moments in the movie where you can just feel every sort of texture. It starts very early on where the hand is in a, you know, plastic medical bag at the hospital and it breaks uh, a jar and to get out, it uses the broken glass and like you can feel the the broken glass on this hand when it like pierces the bag and then pierces the skin and there's a little bit of blood coming out and then different parts of the movie you 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 could feel the roughness of the roof that it's walking across every every instance that it has you know how that feels yeah the rain or or the the sidewalk or food or things like that whatever it is you you know what that feels like and and i've really never seen a movie where you can literally feel what the character is feeling and it's so unique in in such a different sort of film i loved it uh coming in for number eight for me is pain and glory the pedro almodovar film starring antonio banderas this uh was actually my first almodovar film i've always wanted to catch up with his work and this being nominated for both international film and best actor for banderas was reason enough to finally catch up with it and uh his work and boy was this fantastic very much in the sense of uh, something like Eight and a Half, where you have the main character who is a surrogate for the director uh, and is reliving their life and sort of their relationship with art and how it, that works. And it's it's so much is it's so personal of a movie where every every moment, every line of dialogue is clearly pulled directly from Almodovar's life. And Banderas brings such breadth of energy to this well-worn character where the fact that they have such a long working relationship, I don't think this movie would have been made 
if Banderas had never worked with uh, Elmodovar before. I think you need the fact that they have this personal history and they clearly know each other very well that Banderas was able to do an accurate uh, representation of what his friend is like. And then you've got this really interesting, you know, you see what he was like as a young man, uh, what he was like as a little boy, all this sort of stuff going on, playing with time. And then the very end, I'm not going to ruin it, but it really hinges on the final scene. And when that happens, it just sort of like blows the whole movie completely wide open. And it makes you like rethink and want to rewatch what you just seen. And it, it completely changes your perception of everything. Yeah, I thought the ending of this film, this, the realization that comes from the final scene was so beautiful and amazing. And you're just like, wait, oh my gosh, that's that's fantastic. And so I also think that Banderas' performance was so um, amazing and beautiful and just makes me want to go back and watch more Antonio Banderas films. Yeah, it's interesting because he's someone who's been in you know the Hollywood system for quite a while. He's also worked in... In, in Spanish language cinema for quite a while as well, even longer. And he's always been someone who I don't think I've really ever given much thought to. Yeah. It's not that I, I disliked his movies or his performances, um, but I never really thought much about him, and this definitely paints him in a very new light for me. Yeah, me too. All right, now we are going to hear from Paulo Bautista, the host of the Oscars Death Race podcast, who I recently just interviewed on the very last episode, going to talk about what his favorite movie is, and is going to lead into what we have to say next. Hey, Dakota. Thanks for having me on the podcast again. This is Paulo from the Oscars Death Race podcast. So this is probably typical to say, and I swear I'm not just being a bandwagon fan, but Parasite is my favorite movie of 2019. I think it really straddles the line between art house films and kind of a wide appeal films. Look, watching some Korean films after it won Best Picture, I watched Burning. You know, that's pretty art house, but it's also a little bit too inaccessible, I think, for the wider audience. Whereas Train to Busan, which has, you know, great wide appeal and had very visceral accents to it, you know, I don't think will appeal as much to the art house film crowd. So Parasite is really one of the few films I've seen that really transcends both, which kind of led to a great community rallying behind it and seeing everyone root for it to win Best Picture, seeing kind of the word of mouth spread as it slowly rolled out over time um, is really exciting to see. Um, you know, as someone who really likes digging into the creation of the film, there's seemingly an endless pool of analysis to be done on even the smallest decisions, everything from the cinematography, composition, and framing, and camera movement, to screenwriting that leads to characterization, and, you know, foreshadowing of what's happening, and, and laying on the themes, the editing that's done, you know, being very economical, with about a fourth fewer shots than the typical movie of a similar length, the character acting, you know, very subtly, um, even the production, and everything from the setting to the props the costumes to you know everything working together to drive on this theme of you know uh class class struggle um and and you know i watched joker the same week and has a lot of the same themes i thought joker was going to be one of my favorite films of the year but you know parasite kind of out joker joker in a way um you know and every, and just every time i've seen the movie you know i saw it when they premiered here in New York at the IFC Center and being able to have a Q&A with Bong Joon-ho was amazing. And then recently I actually went back and watched it after it won Best Picture here at the Alamo Draft House in New York, seeing it in black and white. And that just added a whole other level of, you know, enjoyment for the film. So I know this is running a little bit long, but um, yeah, Parasite is definitely my film for 2019. 
So thank you, Paulo, for recommending that. And now that leads us right into Stephanie's number seven pick, which is the exact same. Yes, number seven for me is also Parasite. Um, I thought that the different range of emotions that this film brought was really amazing. I mean, apart from the reception that it's getting from Hollywood and critics and you know everyone around the world, um, I know that both of us were both very excited to go see this movie, being big Bong Joon-ho fans. And the trailer looked great, so we weren't quite... We wanted to go in with fresh eyes and not really know much about what was going on. And, man, I think even if we had an idea of what was going on, we weren't going to expect what came up came from the end of this film. But I think that the tension that is involved in this movie and the humor that is involved in this movie, and, you know, it brings up a, a bunch of different, you know, societal um, feelings and you know, different plot points, I guess, mm -hmm. that are happening currently and just around the world. It was really poignant, and it was just a an interesting, new, fun watch for me that I'm actually itching to go back and re-watch, but um, I enjoyed the editing of this and just all the performances I thought really brought home this film. I know you weren't as big of a fan of, of what seems to be the rest of the world, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I thought it was a great, good watch. And no, this is one I, I'm, I'm fully aware that I need to rewatch. And every time I see clips from it, uh, you know, during the funny moments, I'll, I'll laugh. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did like that bit. Mm -hmm. And then I'll hear someone talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that was a good bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm fully aware that I need to rewatch it. I don't know what it was for me. As I talked during the, the Tom Ernst episode, it was maybe the quick shift to the ending, changing its tone that, that might not have worked for me. So so maybe once I, I know it going in, maybe when I watch it again and keeping that in mind, I'll be able to more focus on the finer details and not so much the overall plot structure. And maybe that'll make me appreciate it differently in a new light. But like all the performances in this are fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's shot gorgeously. You know, the symbolism of, you know, the, the big rich house and the these parasites living down below the, the city streets in the lower level apartment of a lower level area and all this sort of stuff. Like it's it's a genius way it's, of setting this movie it's just up. It's great. And I love the dynamics of both families and how they re like react and interact with each other. Um, it just reminds me of, you know, different families that I know or the family that I'm in. And I think that even though, you know, not being Korean myself, I think it still spans many different levels and many different cultures that, you know, you may not directly relate, but still have an idea of what that means to each of us. Oh, yeah. I, I think every culture can kind of relate to this a little bit as far as uh, this idea of who deserves to be well off and successful right. and, and what people that aren't successful, what they deserve or don't deserve in life. I made a crazy risk to gamble. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest fucking bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. Up next in my number seven slot in your number four slot is Uncut Gems, the new Safdie Brothers movie that stars Adam Sandler. We actually first 
became acquainted with the Safdie brothers when we saw their movie a couple years ago, Good Time, starring so Ro- good. Robert Pattinson, where that was sort of the, the turning tide where everyone was like, no, really, you need to check out this Robert Pattinson movie. He's actually a really good actor. That movie shook me. Yeah, and, and so that's why we checked it out, and we were both really impressed with it. It's a really dark and gritty movie, which if you've seen Uncut Gems by now, you should understand what dark and gritty means because Uncut Gems is basically almost a two-hour anxiety trip uh, while watching Adam Sandler literally make every wrong decision that you can make where 10 steps away you can be like, no, this is the wrong move. Why are you doing this? And you watch him make it and you're basically you're watching a car crash happen over and over and over again. And every time for some reason he gets out unscathed and it's like, why are you getting back in the race car? You're just going to get in another accident again. I can see the car yeah. plowing towards you. And it's amazing the way you still root for him. You're like, Oh, that's such a wrong choice. Wrong and he's move. such a and bad like, person. Oh, okay. You have to get out of this. <laughs> but like, this is a movie that works because everyone is so committed to this. It was very interesting where at the end of it, you turned to me and you're like, so Kevin Garnett actually allowed himself to be portrayed this way? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, uh, he let him look like a bit of a fool and someone that believes that he was good at basketball due to a, a magic rock, in his opinion. Um, and then you've got this like, basically this movie only has one level and it's uh, really loud <laughs> and in your face. Uh, and so if you're... if if you're looking for something quiet and intimate, this is not the movie for you. If you're willing to withstand um, Adam Sandler and Julia Fox yelling at each other for two hours, this is a fantastic film. Also, she's a great find for a supporting oh performance. Gosh. The <laughs> scenes with them together, especially the one after the weekend show where they're yelling at each other <laughs> on the streets. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot talk about this film. I keep telling people, you got to watch this movie, you got to watch this movie. And I feel like it's not, you were telling me, it's not really a movie for everyone, but I love these types of movies that are just raw and gritty and fast-paced and high-intensity full all the way through. So I was so happy at the end of this movie. I was like, let's watch it again. (laughs) The performances were great. The editing was great. The music was great. It was so high-intensity. And um, that's why I have it so high up on my list. Mm -hmm. I I know that I was waiting for so long to watch this too. I was like, oh, it sounds so good. And then people were talking about it and I was like, oh, I need to watch it. We were waiting to watch it on Netflix. And so by the time it finally came around, I was a little nervous because I had high expectations, but it surpassed all those expectations. I like that. I, uh, uh, Idina Menzel was able to, well, I guess, wanted to do something that is not just Frozen because you look at her IMDb credits and basically the last five years she's just been doing uh, Elsa performances, mm. whether it's in video games yeah. or, or shorts or things like that. And that's basically her entire filmography. And so I, I feel like this was like her way of being like, holy crap, I just need to do something that's different Adults. and terrible. Yeah. And she was great though. Yeah, she, she has a very small part. But she does a, a great job where, where she needs to be, uh, being this exasperated wife that's dealing with Adam Sandler. Yeah, she gives good cut eye. Yeah. And like, what the hell? Adam Sandler, I thought he only in the movies that he produces, does he get like surrounded by super hot women? And, you know, he's in a different movie where he has no real involvement and his two love interests are Idina Menzel and Julia Fox. And it's like, yep. seriously, what, what does this man have? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to our next voicemail. 
which is from Curtis Sindri, who is the head man over at Aesthetic Magazine. My pick for best film of 2019 is Booksmart, featuring Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever and directed by Olivia Wilde in her feature directorial debut. It has some of your, you know, typical coming-of-age comedy tropes, but does it in such a fresh and fun way, especially with a female perspective, uh, that makes it one of the best buddy high school comedies uh, of all time. A unique perspective, hilarious, and huge rewatchability makes it one of my favorite films of 2019 and also what I think one of the best. So he talked about Booksmart, a movie that I am a fan of. I really enjoyed the the humor in that. I know that that was one that you weren't really as crazy about. No, not really. <laughs> but, I, I won't say much more about that. <laughs> I liked it though. But we're going to move on to your number six pick. What do you have for us? So coming in at number six is Dolomite is my name. I thought this was such a fun watch. Hilarious. Eddie Murphy, like at his best. Um, his comedic chops, as everyone knows, is like on point. But also Divine Joy Randolph was an amazing supporting um cast choice her character and what she brought to that to that performance was really great really deep and really moving um as well as wesley snipes he was hilarious i think this whole cast was great but the costumes were amazing and the production design was amazing but you know the fact that they could tell this story which is based on this real guy um and brought to light what he did and and what was going on I, i i thought it was just really fun funny movie and uh it did not get you know enough recognition for me i thought it deserved so much more yeah eddie murphy is someone who's kind of pissed off too many of the quote-unquote right people uh which is a, a damn shame uh this movie very clearly was his way of sort of apologizing for his his past indiscretions of being difficult to work with and pissing off everyone because there's a, there's a scene in the movie where I feel it directly addresses it where the director in the movie uh, doesn't want to help out with more than he needs to despite right. the fact that everyone is sort of pulling their weight and Eddie Murphy's character turns to him and says look, I'm the star of this movie, but if you need me to uh, move a box, I will move a box. If you need me to set up lights, I'll set up lights. If you need me to do anything, I will do that. And I think that was his way of like directly apologizing. Look, I know I've not been the best of person, but like I still have so much to offer. And, and this movie was really his gift of, of giving back to the comedy community. And it is, it is fantastic. I really loved everyone that was involved in this. They did such a great job. And like you said, it was a damn shame even, you know, ignoring Eddie Murphy. Why wasn't it nominated for hair and makeup or costumes or a million different other things that were going on in this film? This was this was clearly one of the year's best films, and it's a shame that it wasn't recognized as such. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a miss. I feel like it was maybe overshadowed uh, by Netflix's other bigger releases, Marriage Story and The Irishman, where it seemed to kind of fall behind that, and even uh, some other stuff that we'll later talk about as well, and, and that's a shame. Yeah. 
All right, moving on. My number six film and your number three film is Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. I've been a big fan of Waititi for a while. I really loved uh, his last few movies, What We Do in the Shadows, Thor Ragnarok, um, Hunt for the Wilder People. Thank you, blanking on that one. He is one of my favorite directors. His comedic timing is impeccable. His weird, off-kilter sense of humor just hits me in the right spot. And once again, this did too. I was lucky enough to see it at TIFF when it came out and it actually ended up winning the People's Choice Award. And I know that was a bit of a controversial pick, but I was very happy with it. And, you know, I listened to detractors of this movie and every time they want to say something about it, I'm like, but the movie addresses that. But that's the point of it. Yeah. And like, you, you listen to these complaints where like, oh, well, you know, it wants to be funny and then it tries to be too serious. Well, the whole time it's threading that that weird high, wi uh, high wire act. And I think it does a really good job with it. And, and right from the get-go when it's blending this sort of modern take of fanaticism to uh, comparing it to Nazi Germany is just so evident of, of the message that YTD is trying to get. And frankly, this movie works completely because Roman Griffin Davis as the lead Jojo, if he wasn't a grounded performer and able to carry the load, this movie wouldn't work at all. Right. No, I get so mad when people talk down about this film and, oh, I think they're making, you know, light of a very si serious situation. And I'm like, that's the point. I think it's, you know, supposed to bring to light not just what was happening then, but what's happening now. I think it's very topical in how, like, radical and, you know, this idea of following the trend and following, you know, being wanting to be part of a club, even if you don't really know what's behind those doors, is really important. And, you know, it's it's showing that. It's not making fun of it. It's not saying that what happened, you know, in World War II and with Nazis and, and all that was, you know, to be made light of or to be funny. It's showing, you know, how serious... It can be. It's the absurdity of it all. Yeah. And I think the performances were just amazing. And um, I am such a huge fan of Taika Waititi. I mean, I could listen to him read a newspaper. He's got a great voice. <laughs> totally okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I had it so high. I'm a huge fan. I loved Hunt for the Wilder People. Like, loved it. Um, and this one was also one that I also absolutely love. I'm not a huge fan of children or children actors, but for some reason, the ones that are that he chooses to be in his film always rock me to my core. And I'm like, oh man. Yeah, he does, he does great casting. You know, like I mentioned, the lead of Roman Griffin Davis as as uh, Jojo, but then also his best friend, kid Archie Yates great. as Yorkie, is just yeah. so adorable. So good. But like overall, the casting, Thomas and Mackenzie, who's a, a very young up and coming actor, she's so terrific mm -hmm. in, in Leave No her. Trace that we saw last two years ago now. Um, she was great in this. And then like Scarlett Johansson, who got nominated for Best Supporting Actress in this so movie. So happy she got nominated. Very well deserved. Yeah. Everyone really points to. The, the dual scene where she plays both uh, herself uh, as the mother and the absent father. But there's, there's numerous other great little scenes that really showcase why 
she really anchors this movie. She yeah. she sort of brings home the seriousness of the movie where she keeps everything really grounded for me. I think one great scene in that film is where she when she's talking um to Jojo? No, um the girl that she's hiding. Oh, oh to Elsa, yeah. Yeah, and she's ta- talking about being talking a woman. About being a woman and what it means to be a woman and you have to be a tiger and mm-hmm. that's what it means. And I thought that was a great quiet but strong moment for mm-hmm. both actresses. Yeah, absolutely. All right, now we're going to get to our next voicemail, Jonathan from Hawkeye's podcast. He's going to talk about what his favorite movie of last year was. My name is Jonathan. I'm a co-host of Hawkeye's and Ethan Hawk podcast. Um, my pick for the best or my favorite movie of 2019 would have to be Knives Out. Um, I think that there are movies that are maybe more shocking or funnier or better have better cinematography or even better writing. But when you take all of those things together... I don't think there is a movie that had all of those things down quite like Knives Out did. Um, and just the ensemble and the the writing and the acting and Daniel Craig's ridiculous accent. Um, it all comes together so, so beautifully. And um, I think it's the kind of movie that's that's smarter than it seems on the surface. And... That's why it's my top pick. So coming in at number six for you and number six for me <laughs> is Knives Out. Knives Out. What a fun watch. I knew going into this that this could be a hit or a miss. Um, big star-studded casts usually go, you know, one direction, usually down. But, um, you know, I think with Ryan Johnson's script, this is what made it great. Um, I love this little, like, fun, sleuthy, kind of mystery, mystery movie was, how it started, how it ended. I'm not going to say that there wasn't anything wrong with it, but just as an entertainment value as a viewer, it was great, and I loved it. I thought all the performances were amazing. Um, Tony Collette, always one of my favorites, and I thought she was... <laughs> Tony Collette playing Gwyneth Paltrow? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, She was definitely one of my favorites in this film. But, I mean, how can you separate them all? They all played their characters so exceptionally well. Um, And it was... It was just an, an entertainment, entertaining watch. Uh, the script was funny. It was sharp. Um, it was topical. The production d- design was, you know, fun and amazing, like a live uh, game board. Yeah, it, it was like Clue. watching Clue. Yeah, which was, you know, pretty amazing. And I know that there's a movie of Clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this, I feel like, does it better, yeah. you know? And, um, uh, of course, everyone's talking about Daniel Craig and his performance, but I think uh, that also, you know, the... The sidekick detectives, I guess you'll call them, or the lesser, you know, up and front ones like the Keith Sandfield were really great, had great moments. I feel like everyone had their moment to shine, took it, shined a light on it, and just wiped their hands clean of it. It was great fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I didn't like Ryan Johnson's last movie, The Last Jedi, and I know anytime someone says that they don't like The Last Jedi, it's usually because like, oh, he put women into the Star Wars and he ruined it. And, and no, I just thought it was a movie that had bad script issues where there was too many plot holes and unnecessary moments, things like that, where it just completely didn't work for me. That's a terrible, terrible movie, and no one will be able to convince me otherwise. I'm sorry, but. 
he really, really redeemed himself with Knives Out. I know he wrote Knives Out a bit as a retort to the critics of uh, The Last Jedi, but I, I, I don't care. I think it works far better just looking at completely as a social commentary. You mentioned some of those highlights. I think you can't forget talking about uh, both Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas, the who basically have the most screen time outside of Daniel Craig. Uh, they really carry this movie. Daniel Craig, if he was kind of left on his own, I know they're making a spin-off movie of his character, probably could get a, either a little bit grating or you just yeah. get tired of his shtick. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Yeah, I don't know either. But you have Anna Diarmas and Chris Evans' characters who really anchor this movie and bring a lot of humanity to it. And it really keeps you guessing. But, you know, by now I'm sure a lot of people know, basically within the first half hour or so, you understand who did the murder, how it happened, why it happened, all this sort of stuff. And then the rest of it is how do you untangle the mess that has been tangled since the murder occurred? And that's where the beauty of the movie really takes place and watching all these characters sort of squirm within their own mess that they've created and how that unravels. By the end, everything makes sense. And usually you, you can kind of figure it out a little bit towards the end, but um, watching it is where the real delight in this movie yeah. is. Yeah. We talked earlier about me really enjoying uh, mystery movies like Under the Silver Lake, and, and this is one that I think works a little bit better because it doesn't rely on you being so in the dark, right. which I kind of appreciate where a movie, anytime a movie can be like, this is what happened, now I'm going to show you everything else, and I think that's where it can really work its wonders because if a movie relies too much on a hook and if the hook doesn't pay off then you kind of lost the whole movie mm -hmm. whereas this gives you the hook early on yeah i see what you're saying all right coming in for number five for me was the two popes this was a movie where i was curious about seeing it i i wasn't too sure how i'd feel about the the fernando morales movie uh, I really like both Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. I knew that it was about the transition period where um, one pope was stepping down and another one was being elected because normally they wait until after they die before a new pope is elected. So I don't know if it's ever happened or very rarely has happened that there's been this actual transition of power. But um, this movie was fantastic. You know, I, I looked at this movie and saw it as a real critique of, of Catholicism for all the beauty that it sort of shines onto. I think it doesn't hide the fact that the church has a lot of demons in its closet uh, and some very literal skeletons as well. You have Anthony Hopkins' character who has ties to Nazi Germany and was basically trying to be a regressive pope. And then you have Jonathan Price's character who probably did some very questionable acts uh, back in Argentina when they were looking for socialists and uh, there was a bit of a, uh, I, I don't even know the best way to describe it because I'm not too informed of it, where they would uh, capture and kill anyone that they suspected of being um, subversive to the government. And, uh, and watching sort of these back stories play out and then seeing the the present tense of the two of them sit and have life conversations is, is very enlightening and they raise tons of, of great moments and and seeing them these two actors basically just given a script anytime you you want to see something 
fantastic. You give a great script to two actors and just watch what they can do. And watching the two of them play off of each other and both have their own tics and personalities and little things that they bring to their role that isn't in the script, that's where you see true magic happens. And that's where I think this movie truly shines a light on. Up until, I mean, including the final end credit sequence, which doesn't give anything away, but it ends with uh, the two of them watching a World Cup game between Argentina and Germany. And after you get to sit and watch their personalities for two and a half hours and gain to watch them, I'm guessing, just improvise off of each other while eating chips and drinking beer and watching soccer is yeah. probably one of like the movie going highlights of the year for, for me. Sure, I think we've mentioned it on a past podcast where we're just waiting for that television show where both Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price are sitting watching soccer. I think that would be, you know, just amazing based off of that sole scene alone. But I mean, normally I'm not a big fan of big, heavy dialogue, conversational pieces or, or films, and I think just the casting is where this, you know hammered home and brought that to life and, and made it a great film. It's definitely an honorable mention for me. And, and, you know, there were some just other films that I enjoyed more that made it onto my top 10, but I'm so glad that you loved it so much that we were able to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really did love this movie. All right, so now we're going to listen to First Round Flick podcast, Eric and Sandra Dugan. They're going to talk about what their favorite movies of last year was. Hi, I'm Eric from First Round Flick, and my favorite movie of 2019 has got to be Parasite. It's just a tight, unforgettable thriller, and I really couldn't be more happy that it won the Academy Award. It's just super memorable, and I'm really happy for the whole Parasite team and Bong Joon-ho. This is Sandra from First Round Flick. I love documentaries, and my favorite documentary from last year was the film Honeyland, which is about the woman from North Macedonia who's a beekeeper, and it's about the fragility of all things. And it was beautiful and moving, and the camera work is astonishing. I highly recommend it. Coming in at number four for me, and your number one movie was Sam Mendes' 1917. This was his World War I epic film that was shot to make it look like it was one continuous take, even though there's a bit of liberties as far as how much time has passed, which is completely fine. I know that's something that some people got hung up on, where that's not something that really bothered or concerned me in the slightest. But this movie follows two soldiers as they are basically trying to get across one area of battle to the other end of battle to stop a planned attack that is going to be a massacre against the British. And this movie is basically, you know, how do you ratchet up tension and, and keep things mysterious as much as possible? Uh, this is one, obviously, this was your number one movie of the year. So, so what really worked for you for this one? First off, about, I don't know, five or ten minutes into this movie, we went with a friend to the theater to see this, as everybody should see this in the theater. But about five or ten minutes into it, I just could not wait for it to end because I had so much to talk about. I just wanted to just dive in and dissect this film because I thought it was so amazing. I understand that some people might find it a little gimmicky or they have problems with the timing and uh, or the pacing or not the pacing but the like you mentioned the different um, passing of time but I just really appreciated that the camera and the journey that we were that we were brought on was like being 
a part of that duo. You know, everything that happened, um, we didn't see before the two of them saw. We were always slightly, you know, behind them. We were like, um, like a bird on the shoulder. If they were going up over a hill, we didn't, you know, we had this big giant crane shot where we saw what was coming before them and we could feel that agony. We lived everything with them in time, which I thought was so integral to the tension and the the anxiety that, you know, these soldiers had to have had during those times. So I really appreciated that we weren't in on the story or in on the the events. We were living it with them. And just the quietness that both, um, or especially the, the, the lead actor, um, George McKay, brought was so good. You know, you don't really know anything about these guys. You're th- they're thrust into this story. You're thrust into the story. And you're learning about them as it goes along. And by the end of it, you're just heartbroken and amazed at how this whole thing transpired. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but this is why it's my number one. I thought the cinematography was beautiful. The story was amazing. The performances were great. And just, you know, living this film as if you were a part of it, not just watching it, it really brought me into it and really connected with me. And I absolutely loved it. And for me, something that worked so well uh, was Roger Deakins' cinematography. I'm so happy that he won the Best Cinematography Oscar his second after finally winning after like 16 nominations for Blade Runner 2049. I think it was a year or two ago. Uh, but this movie also features basically uh, a greatest hits of, of British actors. Mm-hmm. You had Colin Firth and Andrew Scott and Mark Strong and, Tim, and um, Benedict Cumberbatch all basically pop up, do their five minutes of screen time to leave a lasting impression and then move on to the next bit, which really helps kind of anchor the movie where uh, you didn't know where it was going to go to next and you had all these very big presents uh lay everything out for you that you need to know because the characters that these uh the the two young men play um they're so much in the dark just like we are like you you were mentioning that we need them to sort of fill in the blanks for us mm-hmm. all right so now before we get into our last couple of picks we are going to list what our honorable mentions are uh, these are movies that we really liked, maybe not necessarily ones that come right after number 10, but ones that uh, definitely want to highlight. For me, it's a bit of a longer list. Uh, the Art of Self-Defense was a, a movie that I had very high up through most of the year and then unfortunately just sort of got edged out. That was a, a Riley Stearns film starring Jesse Eisenberg uh, in a movie that if you thought Fight Club didn't address the toxic masculinity issues enough this is one that really hits you on the nose about it the documentary apollo 11 that was put together from not found footage but uh compiled footage basically uh the lighthouse the robert eggers movie starring robert pants and willem dafoe fantastic dark twisted movie wild rose uh, a nice little um 
musical film about a woman who wants to become a country singer, not country and western singer, mm-hmm. in Nashville, but she lives in Scotland, so it's a, a very uh, different situation for her. Uh, Midsummer, the Ari Aster film starring Florence Pugh as well. Uh, I really went for that one. And uh, probably the last one I want to bring up is For Sama, the documentary about uh, a Syrian woman who is making um, a movie for her just-born daughter uh, about what life is like growing up in in war-torn Syria while her husband is a doctor in a hospital and what sort of issues that they have to overcome together. Do you have any other ones that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, apart from some of the ones that made your list that didn't make mine, and uh, along with Apollo 11, which I thought was a great documentary that didn't, you know, have any dialogue, I thought really told the story really beautifully. Um, But The Farewell was one of my favorites. I thought it was great performances and um, a really great little story. And I thought that it got kind of snubbed and overlooked. So I want to give a a good shout-out to that one. But also Klaus, um, the animated film about Santa, I guess, and, you know, where this folklore of Santa came from. That was a really unique and interesting story about about his origin. And um, I wasn't expecting much from it and left really happy. So uh, I also want to shout out to that one. Yeah, both of those are terrific ones that I I really liked as well. The Farewell was robbed of a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Nai Nai, the the grandmother in that movie, who is terrific. I think at this point, if you haven't seen it, you really need to to go for it and and make you want to call up your grandmother afterward and and tell her how much you love her. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're moving on to our last few movies we once again have a tie with a position. Both of our number two films is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, I mean, such a shocker that this A makes my list and two is, or I guess B, makes it so high. I'm not the most biggest fan of Quentin Tarantino. I can appreciate some of his films. I really enjoy Pulp Fiction. But um, going into a movie that I knew was going to be long, um, you know, I knew it was Quentin Tarantino. I wasn't expecting much. And the fact that we saw it so long ago and that it's still here, I think, really speaks volumes for me. Um, just really enjoyable. The cinematography is great. Um, the, the production design is great. But I think what really nails the um, nails it for me is the performances. I'm not a giant Leonardo DiCaprio fan, but I think this is one of my favorite performances by him. I think he brings such range and such um, an amazing unique take. That's something different that he hasn't really brought to us before on film. Uh, I really enjoyed, and of course, Brad Pitt is great. But it was just a really, um, I'm not even sure why I loved it so much and why it really stuck with me, but it was a journey that it took me on from the beginning to the end. It didn't feel like it was, what was it, three and a half hours long or something? It like wasn't that, that long, no. Oh, it was, it was probably it was, close to three hours. Yeah, it was three hours long, and it didn't feel three hours long. It, it didn't, I guess the pacing was on point for me, I, is what I'm trying to say, but um, just all the different stories and the way they intertwined with each other and the way music played a part in it really made it, you know, an entertaining and enjoyable film for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was often used as a derogatory way to explain the film of it being about movies and how, you know, that's so passe and, it, and people, you know, just... The Academy eats that stuff up whenever it's a movie about them and so self-congratulatory. I, I think that was one of its highlights was the fact that it 
is about Hollywood and the fact that we love movies so much. Seeing that and getting to sort of live in that world for a few mm-hmm. hours really made it worthwhile. And and you didn't mention Margot Robbie, and I think oh, that's yeah. the thing where yeah. people are so divided on how to take her because it's like, oh, she doesn't speak very much, but it doesn't matter. It's just about sort of living that happiness that she has of getting to watch a movie and enjoy film and also be involved in it. And it's, it's just sort of like reciprocating love that you get. Yeah. And you don't need her to talk a lot. Just being able to be in her presence, I think, is more than enough. For sure. I think there's, I mean, everyone talks about this scene where she's, you know, in the movie theater and watching herself. And, you know, it is great. It's a touching uh, moment. But there's this, there's a scene before that, I believe it's before, um, where she's walking to the theater. And just this, like, um, this presence and this jaunt that she has in her step, I think, speaks volumes to, like, what she's bringing to her character and how you're supposed to feel about her and just how cute and quaint and and kind of quiet she is, but still really excitable. And I think that brings so many different levels to that character without even speaking a word, you know? It's just walking down the street, through a busy street, and, um, you know, it just really focuses on her walk. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think the big scene that everyone sort of talks about, uh, there's two, I guess, with, with Leonardo DiCaprio. The Obviously, the him forgetting his lines and having a bit of a breakdown in his trailer is one, and it's fantastic. But the other big one that gets talked about a lot is him sitting next to this young girl who's in a scene with him and they're going back and forth talking about being actors and and what they're reading and things like that but for me i think the scene that works best one of the best is when they finally get to show you the filming of this western tv show that that leo's character is working on and basically you know we use the term hollywood magic a lot and it really does feel like magic because we know this is being filmed for a tv show but for some reason there's no cameras there's no boom operators there's no production assistants standing next to the side there's no script coordinators looking at the lines and you just sort of see this like dust in the air haze in the filming it 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 you know it's not the finished product that they're showing you. You know that it's the work in progress. But for some reason, you just buy into this so much. And we know, if you've ever seen how movies are made, that a scene is shot, you know, one camera facing the actor one way, and then they stop, and then they reshoot it with the camera facing in opposite direction, and then they stop, and they do it from a different direction. They keep doing it over and over again. But this, it's like a seamless transition between the different camera angles and it all works out and it's just so magical and beautiful and then you know it all comes crashing down to earth when he forgets his lines but it's up until that point it's all hilarious yeah. it's like this it's beautiful scene. beautiful moment of hollywood magic yeah there's i think there's just so many that, that's what things are so great about this film there's so many different scenes that you could pluck from this movie and just dissect and talk about and and bask in the light of it so that's what makes it pretty now, for my number one film, I'm going to go a little off the board, one that I haven't seen a lot being mentioned in, in the best movies of the year, and I'm very disappointed, and it's uh, Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This is a movie that uh, I wouldn't have heard of if I didn't know of it from the Film Spotting podcast where, where they reviewed it and, and heavily were praising it, and much like another film that I learned from them, uh, Columbus, 
directed by Koganon. This is a movie that is about the love of your city and what you bring to your city as well. Uh, it's it's a little hard to describe the plot, but basically it's about a, a young black man who, through the process of gentrification, uh, his family and other black people in the community have slowly been pushed out from the nicer areas of San Francisco to the less desirable areas. And he has his eyes set on this uh, beautiful house that his grandfather built uh, in downtown San Francisco. And he will stop at nothing to get it back and be the rightful owner of it because he believes that this house is as much of a part of his family as any living person is. And through this, it's just this beautiful exploration of what it means to be so connected to your roots and where it goes. It stars Jimmy Fails, who plays a character by the same name, and, uh, and another actor named Jonathan Majors, who plays a guy named Monty, his best friend. And the two of them work together so beautifully. This is all about the the cinematography, the, the shots of the bay, of the Golden Gate Bridge, of the angles of the houses, of the steep streets, of walking... A, along them in the trolley cars and everything about this just seeps into you and you understand why he has such a passion for this city and for this house but it's also such a tragic film at the very same time it's got some some wonderful uh smaller turns rob morgan who plays um jimmy's father and mike epps who who plays this guy who, who lives in his car and danny glover as a, as an older blind man that he was living with as well and there's just all these different little moments where it adds up and, and his best friend monty is this poet slash playwright and it all kind of culminates when they're back in this house finally they're they're squatting in it because they managed to get access to it after there was a uh bit of a, a issue going on i don't want to spoil too much about it and uh, monty puts on a one-man play and they're he's sort of rehashing everything that they've gone through and the loss of people that they they loved and what he is going through and he sort of punches everything with this hard emotional beat and you're hearing things that people don't want to hear but they need to deal with and process and it's just such a beautiful film and hit me the hardest and right when i saw this early in the year i knew it was my number one movie and, and nothing throughout the year dethroned this this was a movie that i am going to constantly recommend but i don't know if anyone will actually end up watching it <laughs> yeah did you mention the name of the film did you say the last black man in Francisco? yes okay yeah. um but uh it was a beautiful film and just watching it visually was you know it's stunning something to take from it on its own but i think it, there were great strong you know film and you can think about different things and truly like being a huge fan of my own hometown my own city of Toronto you can totally feel you know what this man is feeling for his for his city for um, for his home and you can relate as someone who loves their own city so much um, it didn't quite make my top 10 it's still a great film and one I would definitely recommend it's one the one that not a lot of people know about but there's some great you know the, the themes are there Ryan's visual delay which is totally amazing um, it's weird like I'm not a, a creep 
reporter. I'm not a fan of Stanley Kramer, but there's been several films in the past couple of years that I've watched with skateboarding in it, and I'm just mesmerized watching people, you know, riding skateboards. Especially when it's done in, in slow motion. Yeah, <laughs> there's something beautiful and gorgeous about it, but um, I'm just going to throw out, you know, Miami Gap with the Hanging Gator Ducks from, from last from year. From last yeah. year. Um, I don't know, there's just something um, tranquil about it, but also exciting makes you kind of internalize or, or look internally to what you're feeling and, and thinking about. So it, it was a beautiful film, and I, I can't take that away from it. Mm-hmm. So that was my number one film. Now, because we are sort of jumping around a little bit, we are going to relist what our 10 through 1 is. Stephanie, if you want to start with yours. Sure. So uh, starting from 10, I had Under the Silver Lake, Corpus Christi, I Lost My Body, Parasite, Dolomite is my name, Knives Out, Uncut Gems, Jojo Rabbit, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and 1917. For me, coming at number 10 was Corpus Christi, Little Women, Pain and Glory, Uncut Gems, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, The Two Popes, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and number one, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So there you have it. This puts an end to our 2019 and all of the content that we have. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you either heard some movies you liked or maybe you want to check out some of the ones that we talked about. Uh, Let us know. What was your favorite film of 2019? Stephanie, thank you for joining me on this big episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. I want to thank everyone that guested on the show, starting with Stephanie Pryor for sharing her picks. Harper and Jonathan from the Hawkeyes podcast, a show that is going through Ethan Hawke's entire filmography, movie by movie. Paulo Bautista, host of both the Oscars Death Race podcast and his newest show, Filmography in Focus, where each episode he does a deep dive into a different director's oeuvre. Eric and Sandra Dugan, who host First Round Flick, where each week they draft movies in a given genre to make the best top five lists. Make sure you check out all of their shows, also, thank you to Curtis Sindri from Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show and contributing his favorite movie of the year, too. Make sure you follow the show on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ContraZoomPod. What was your favorite movie of the last year? Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com, and I'll feature your response in a future episode. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Anchor, Podcast Addict, and more. We're trying a new thing where shows are being uploaded to YouTube on the ContraZoom Pod channel, and if enough people check the show out, I'll continue doing it in the future. This is the end of Season 5. We'll be back in two weeks and turning the calendar to focus on 2020 films. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.